to the Earn Up Podcast. Welcome back to the Internet Podcast. Tonight we have um, Mike Terralde. No, I just butchered that again. No, that was good. Terralde, <laughs> um, T-Day on the line of 4F-16 pilot. Um, he amassed 25, 25 years. He amassed 4,176 hours in the F-16. Um, thank you for being here tonight. Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here with you. All right. So can you kind of give us where you grew up, kind of a brief, the 30,000-foot overview of what you did in the, in the Air Force? Sure. Um I grew up in uh, the Central Valley of California, about 80 miles east of uh, the San Francisco Bay Area, a small town, uh, Tracy, California. I went to high school there, graduated, went on to the uh, United States Air Force Academy, uh, graduated in 1987 with an astronautical engineering degree. I went to pilot training, flew the OV-10A for a couple of years, then transitioned to the F-16 and uh, flew both of those planes on the west and east coast of the U.S., uh, the F-16 in South Korea, Latin America, Europe, and the Middle East. And finally, I retired as a colonel in the uh, Air Force Reserves, uh, 29 plus years. All right. So can you tell us what got you interested in aviation and um, in particular um, military aviation? Yeah, um, people have asked me that before, and uh, I really don't have a good answer. Um, I just know uh, growing up in high school, I always uh, was interested interested in aviation, um, you know, kind of watch all the old Hollywood war movies and all that. And then uh, one day I visited my mom's older sister who used to uh, babysit for me. And she showed me some old dueling books that she had kept that I had drawn, I guess. And uh, I noticed that they were full of airplanes, uh, dogfighting and strafing targets and stuff like that. So I guess it was in me uh, before uh, I could remember. All right. So how did you go about um, pursuing that dream? Well, <clears throat> uh, after I graduated uh, high school, uh, I wanted to get an engineering degree. I thought about uh, working for NASA, um, but I kind of wanted to be involved in, in some kind of uh, aerospace uh, endeavor. Uh, I, I applied to a bunch of different universities and colleges. I got accepted to about three or four of them, and I chose to go to the uh, Air Force Academy. Following that graduation, I went through pilot training. Uh, obviously, the academy and pilot training were a lot of hard work. And sacrifices, uh, you know, not just myself, but my family and my wife, uh, because, uh, you know, uh, as a fighter pilot, uh, you were, we were always deployed uh, all over the world to combat. Uh, actually having remotes where I was by myself for over a year without my wife. So, uh, you know, it was a lot of hard work, but uh, it was well worth it. So can you talk about the progression of pilot training, kind of the aircraft that you're flying, kind of the progression of that? Yeah, so pilot training is roughly somewhere between uh, 11 and 14 months, depending on what program you go through. Uh, it's very intense. Uh, I really had no extensive flying experience uh, prior to pilot training, other than uh, I flew gliders at the academy and the initial flight screening that everybody goes through. Uh, but uh, at the time in uh, pilot training, uh, we started out flying the T-37. Then uh, that was kind of a more basic uh, formation, that sort of stuff. Then we moved on to the T-38, which is, uh, you know, a supersonic trainer, high performance flying. And uh, then depending on what aircraft you went to, uh, if it was a fighter, you moved on to what they called a fighter lead-in. 
and you flew a modified T-38, which is an AT-38B, which, you know, could drop practice bombs and shoot rockets and uh, fire a gun pod. And there you kind of got the basics of, uh, of, uh, of flying a fighter, you know, low levels, uh, dogfighting, that sort of stuff. Uh, from there, you transition to whatever airplane you were going to. I went to the OV-10 for a couple of years. And then from there, I transitioned uh, to the F-16. So can you talk about your time flying with the OV-10, kind of what the performance was like, kind of the mission that you were doing? Yeah, so uh, it's it was basically an aircraft that was designed during the Vietnam War, and it was designed uh, for forward air control mission, which basically uh, you control airstrikes in close proximity to your own, group, to your own ground troops, ensuring that the fighters uh, drop the weapons on the enemy and not on your not on your own troops that are in close contact with the enemy. It's, it's known as close air support or CAS for short. Mm -hmm. So what would be a typical loadout for the OV-10 if you're going to go out and do that? Say that again? Yes. What would be your loadout? If oh. you're so, um, you know, your main mission was either uh, target spotting or coordination. Uh, you had a, a pretty large uh, communication suite in, in the cockpit. You could talk to ground units uh, on FM radio. You could talk to the fighters on UHF. You also had VHF communications and even HF communications. So a lot of times you were just a, a, a communications relay and just communicating between ground troops and, and uh, air support. Other times you would uh, mark targets, the uh, either the Army uh, soldiers or ground uh, liaison officers, which are basically Air Force pilots that were embedded with Army units would pass you up targets and you would coordinate uh, with the fighters who came in and give them an attack brief. And in that attack brief, you would pass where the friendlies were, where the enemy was, what the target was, coordinates, so forth like that. Also, what kind of threats were in the area. And if there were any attack restrictions, you would make sure that fighters would abide by those restrictions in order to avoid uh, fratricide or, or you know, damaging your own troops. And you could mark targets as well with uh, white phosphorus rockets um, and all kinds of other stuff. Sometimes you would also carry bombs so you could do some light attack, uh, close air support yourself. So what, what was the handling and performance of that airplane like? Uh, the airplane was fairly easy to fly, very maneuverable. Uh, it was a short takeoff and land uh, performance aircraft. Uh, you could land on dirt strips, uh, grass fields, roads, uh, whatever it took. Uh, it was also used uh, for counterinsurgency to, uh, you could carry paratroopers in the back, up, up to eight of them, and you could insert them at night. Uh, they, would, they would do that in Vietnam. Um, so flying the airplane was not difficult, but the mission was very taxing and very complex uh, because you had to know all the weapons that the fighters carried and their effects. You had to keep sight of them. You had to not lose sight of where the ground troops were. You could also coordinate uh, artillery strikes at the same time to suppress some of the surface-to-air threats while, while the fighters were in there. You had to deconflict geographically and by altitude. So you were a very, very busy, uh, you know, individual doing this. And in the Air Force, we basically flew at single seat, even though it was a dual tandem uh, uh, place aircraft. So you were uh, really, really, it's, it, it was really a difficult mission. So can you talk about your transition into the Viper? Yeah, so normally uh, pilots uh, would serve anywhere from two to three year tour uh, in, in the Bronco, the OV-10. And then uh, if they came from another fighter, they would basically return to that fighter. Or in my case, since it was my first assignment, I would go to a fighter. 
at the end of that that tour, basically, you were given, you know, you could ask for what you wanted, and then depending on what was available, you would get it or not, or you'd get a different fighter. I chose the F-16, and, and that's what I received. Um, my tour was shortened just because uh, after Desert Storm, the Air Force uh, decided to uh, retire the OV-10. So I really only spent a little over two years in it, where the normal tour was around three years. Mm -hmm. So can you, um, compared to the Bronco, what was the performance of the Viper like? Uh, that would be, uh, I guess, uh, the OV-10 would be a Toyota uh, Camry, and mm -hmm. the uh, F-16 would be a Formula One race car. So that's about the difference in performance. You know, mm -hmm. it went from a, it went from an airplane that basically did about 230 knots cruise at best to something that could go Mach 2. Yeah. So were there any problems transitioning into it? Or did you find the transition fairly easy? Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't find it too difficult. Uh, obviously, the air-to-air -air stuff was new, having a radar, air-to-air -air radar and all that. Uh, the air-to-ground uh, stuff was pretty similar. Uh, the only thing was that, uh, you know, you just did everything a lot faster and you pulled a lot more Gs. Mm -hmm. So can you give us kind of an overview of S-16 performance-wise um, capabilities? Yeah, so um, the F-16, uh, I, I guess I would say until the uh, the advent of the F-22, was probably the quintessential uh, dogfighting aircraft. You know, although other aircraft like the F-18, the F-15, all that, they, they you know, they do air-to-air -air and they do all that very well. Um, the F-16 <clears throat> has always had the ability to maintain or, or regain energy at a at a basically a lot better than any other platform out there. Uh, part of it is its design, uh, very sleek, very low drag. And the other is, uh, you know, it's a fly-by-wire uh, uh, flight control systems uh, that basically, um, you know, keep an unstable platform uh, stable enough for you to fight and, and not, you know, it doesn't let you get too slow or get out of control or stuff like that. It was it's kind of a difficult airplane to override, uh, much like unlike the other airplanes. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, the, the things that, that kind of stick out on, on the Viper is that it's it's small in size relative to other fighters. And it's a definite advantage in a visual fight. And it's very and it's a highly agile in both air to air and air to ground operations. I would say it's very nimble. Uh, because of its unrivaled ability to gain, maintain, and regain energy, which are advantages all in a dogfight. We had a saying when we flew it, saying of uh, speed is life, and the Viper never mm -hmm. disappointed. Yep. So can you tell me about your um, first deployment into Desert Storm? What was that like, and what were you doing? Yeah, so it's a little unorthodox for uh, for a fighter pilot, uh, since I, I, you know, I alluded to you that uh, – uh, Air liaison officers, i.e., Air Force pilots embedded in, our, in ground army maneuver units, would pass up targets to uh, to the forward air controllers. Well, lo and behold, that's what I was doing. Desert Storm. I was a battalion air liaison officer embedded with the with the Army's first armored division uh, that went into Kuwait and Iraq and uh, attacked the Iraqi uh, Republican Guard armored divisions. I was there to control airstrikes on the on the radio, ensuring our own fighters would not kill our own troops and would deliver ordnance on the enemy. Mm -hmm. So what was going into combat like for the first time? Obviously, for me, it was like a, like a fish out of water. 
surrounded by M1A1 tanks moving at 60 miles uh, per hour across the Kuwaiti and Iraqi desert, while they destroyed Soviet-made uh, T-72 tanks on the horizon through their uh, thermal sights. I never controlled mm-hmm. a single airstrike as the enemy never really posed stiff or close-in resistance. They were all being killed at range by our tanks. I just dodged some enemy artillery and provided communications to the battalion when now they couldn't get through with their own communications means. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about some of your other deployments, what you did? Uh, yeah, you know, uh, not every deployment um, is to uh, to a combat arena. Sometimes you would deploy, uh, you know, to exercises, uh, for training, uh, cross-country flights, that sort of thing. So they're all a little bit different, but usually you're receiving or providing some kind of training for someone or for yourself. Uh, simultaneously. Uh, Some of our other deployments uh, after Desert Storm, we had uh, things like deny flight where we uh, patrolled the no-fly Iraqi uh, north and southern zones. And uh, we basically tried to get some training while we were doing that, making sure no uh, Iraqi fighters were airborne. Uh, We would uh, attack, uh, simulated attack, uh, actual targets uh, just to help us find them should we need to attack them in the future and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, but, you know, the, the only threats we faced were surface to air threats. So stuff like uh, uh, aircraft, uh, anti, anti-aircraft artillery, uh, and then SAM sites, uh, surface to air missiles like the SA-2, 3, 6, and that sort of thing. And, you know, they would uh, try to engage us sporadically and we would either retaliate uh, with anti-radiation ordinance or just, uh, you know, get out of the threat arena and continue our, our, our missions. So if you were flying, let's say you're on a deny flight mission, what type of ordinance are you carrying? Uh, we wouldn't carry a lot, right? We would carry uh, air-to-air missiles for uh, self-defense, uh, both radar-guided and uh, uh, infrared. And then we would probably carry just a couple of uh, bombs, either laser-guided or uh, GPS-guided. And that was because, you know, we really were not there to strike anything unless we were threat. And then we wanted to have enough ordinance uh, for self-protection. So can you talk about how you became an instructor pilot? Yeah, so uh, the natural progression in, in an Air Force squadron, at least in an Air Force fighter squadron or attack squadron, is you start out when you're brand new in the airplane, you're a wingman. And you basically can't, don't fly by yourself without a flight lead, a uh, minimum of, of, a, of a two-ship formation. And then as you gain uh, experience and judgment, you move up to flight lead. And then now you lead uh, new guys either uh, on a two-ship formation or a four-ship formation. And once you're proficient at that, uh, then you enter the instructor upgrade program. Then once you become an uh, an instructor, uh, kind of the, the, uh, the, the pinnacle or the end state is to be an evaluator where you're actually uh, giving evaluation, uh, flying and ground evaluations uh, to other pilots within the squadron or the wing. And, uh, you know, th- th- that's pretty standard in a squadron. You're always trying to develop your, you know, your your human capital uh, because, as you know, pilots don't stay in one base or one aircraft their whole career. They move around every maybe two or three years. So as new people come in, they have to be developed to a certain level. So that the squadron is always uh, and has that combat capability to deploy and and, and employ if, if required to. Mm-hmm. So is there? Can you describe the transition from active duty to? Um, and I excuse myself because it turns out I was wrong to Air Force Reserve. 
Yeah. So, um, you know, whether it's the, the Air National Guard or the Air Force Reserve, uh, they're both components of the, uh, of the reserve component of, of the military. The only difference between them is that the Air National Guard is aligned under states and the Air Force Reserve is aligned under a federal Air Force system. So you can think of it as the Air National Guard is a state reserve and then the Air Force Reserve is a federal reserve. But they're both uh, basically composed of part-time and full-time pilots, if you will, and and actually support personnel as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And often paths that that, uh, pilots take is they'll serve on the regular Air Force uh, for X amount of time, and then they'll transition to the reserves or to the Air National Guard. Um, I myself spent a little over 12 years in the regular Air Force. And then I transitioned to the reserves and spent a little over 17 years in the Air Force Reserve. Um, They're kind of organized in a similar fashion and they're highly experienced because they, you know, although they'll take brand new pilots out of pilot training, they're a, a small minority. And the majority of their pilots have usually spent time with the regular Air Force before the, or, or the Navy even before they come to the, uh, to the reserves or the guard. Mm-hmm. So across, um, all your time, is there one deployment that sticks out whether it was combat or not? Um, deployment. Um, I don't know, you know, there are so many and, and, and a lot of them are very different. Um, obviously it was always, uh, very, uh, challenging to go to Nellis air force base and fly in, uh, ex- air exercises like uh, red flag, uh, because, you know, you would have 60, 70 airplanes in the air at one time. So it was a big air war. And, you know, these days it's kind of hard to get that many airplanes in one, in one uh, piece of airspace mm-hmm. to kind of simulate that whole thing. So that, that was, uh, that was neat. Um, and you know, you were challenged. Um, so I think of that fondly, uh, obviously combat deployments, uh, you know, bring, brings everybody in the squadron uh, together uh, and, you know, some of the hardest things about those deployments sometimes is just deploying from, from the States to wherever you're going. Cause it can be, you know, it can take up to two, three days to get there and multiple air refuelings and that sort of thing. So, you know, they're challenging in different ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't know one's better than the other, but uh, you just, you just focus on different things, uh, you know, whether they be training or combat. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me um, the story of your rejection? Uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, I had just arrived to my second assignment in the F-16 from a, a year uh, of flying in South Korea on a remote. And so I was fairly new to the airplane. I had probably about 300 hours in it. And uh, we were uh, getting ready for an operational readiness inspection, which is basically uh, a higher headquarters uh, assessment of how the squadron is going to deploy and, and employ uh, by simulating basically a, a war game over a week long uh, time period. So we were practicing for this in order to get ready. And I think the exercise was supposed to start in like in two or three days after this flight. So we were uh, taking off, flying a low level, doing some threat reactions with other F-16s, then doing uh, simulated attacks at a, at a range. Um, and we had 
done our first attack, everything went fine. We were setting up for a second attack. As we were descending uh, to low altitude again, um, I, you know, I experienced a, a loud bang and massive deceleration. And uh, initially, I, I thought I hit something, either a bird strike or, or whatever, because uh -huh. I never experienced that kind of deceleration. And as I looked at my engine, I noticed that it was uh, basically winding down. So uh, right away, I <clears throat> started my emergency action procedures that we have memorized for an engine failure and went through that. And after about two steps, I pulled the airplane, uh, raised my nose, climbed it about 30 degrees, started a right hand about 135 degree turn uh, because the nearest emergency airfield was behind me at about four o'clock uh, behind my right wing. So I, as I'm, as I'm pulling away from the ground and trying to restart my engine, I'm turning towards the nearest emergency airfield. So I continue with the uh, emergency procedures and I line up on the runway. I notice that the engine is, uh, is over temping. So I shut it down again waited till the uh, uh, exhaust gas temperature went below what it had to be and then tried to restart again and just kept making sure I was lined up with that runway. I could see it um, to try to make it. Um, as I was uh, thinking about the last step on my, uh, on my checklist, I looked up and I kind of noticed that the, uh, the ground was kind of rushing up at me at, at a, at a faster than expected uh, rate. So I looked at my altitude really quick and noticed that I was, you know, roughly about 2,300 feet above the ground. And I was like, you know, okay. Uh, I took one last look at the engine and I noticed that the RPM was at zero, so which basically meant the engine was seized and it mm -hmm. wasn't spinning. So pretty much then and there, I, I looked up and noticed that the, uh, the approach end of the runway I was trying to make was basically rising on my canopy and on my uh, heads up, oh. display, which basically means that you're not going to get there. Mm -hmm. So that's when I basically told the rest of the rest of the, the other three airplanes that I was going to get out. And basically I just uh, tried to uh, raise my nose and trade uh, altitude for airspeed. And uh, I, I initiated ejection by pulling the handle between my legs and the seat. And uh, you know, it was, it was sort of a, <laughs> you know, you get about 13 G's in that seat when a rocket fires. And after the canopy goes, you go, the seat goes, and uh, you kind of feel the wind blast. Um, I was fairly slow when I got out, so there wasn't a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, wind blast per se. And then you kind of feel like you're hanging on a string as the parachute, you know, as you're flying through the air and you separate from the seat. And uh, then you get big opening shock when that parachute opens. So then after that, you know, it was just a matter of ensuring I had a good canopy on the uh, parachute and going through the post-ejection checklist prior to, uh, you know, uh, landing on the ground. Um, ran through the checklist. Uh, I was fortunate I came down on a dry lake bed, so fairly soft, and uh, just did what we call a parachute landing fall. And after you hit the ground, you basically disconnect the parachute so you don't get dragged uh, by the wind or anything like that. And then once that's done, you know, you go through your uh, your post-ejection and uh, post-landing checklist, making sure you turn off emergency beacons, turn on your radio and contact uh, the guys that are flying above you, tell them that you're okay or whatever's going on. So I did that. And I waited about an hour um, till the helicopter from the base showed up and they took me to a 
in the helicopter, flew me back to the base, you know, and then you get checked out by, by the flight surgeons and all that. And, uh, you know, all the tests that they have to run for, a, for, a, for an accident. I think I, I uh, landed about seven miles short of the runway and the jet hit about three miles short of the runway. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of how it ended. Uh, good and bad about it is that, you know, I was pretty much unhurt. Uh, everything worked the way it should have other than the engine. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, three days later, uh, yeah, three days later I was flying again. So, uh, uh, all in all, uh, it could have been a lot worse. Mm -hmm. So can you talk about, um, did you feel that the F-16 was better in air to air or air to ground? Um, well, I, I'll put it this way. Obviously, when the F-16 was designed in the late 70s, it was, uh, it was designed as a, as a lightweight, uh, you know, cheap, relatively cheap fighter to operate in comparison to the other fighters that we had, like the F-15 and, uh, you know, the F-4 and all that. So it was designed as a day uh, visual uh, flight rules airplane. It could basically carry uh, free-falling general-purpose bombs, and uh, air-to-air -air basically had a 20-millimeter cannon and some uh, infrared heat-seeking missiles. So it was, it was very, very rudimentary. Uh, it, you know, you couldn't shoot missiles at, 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 at beyond visual range like the F-15 could and all this. So that's how the airplane was uh, initially uh, designed and, and, and uh, acquired by the Air Force. As time went on and technology improved, uh, more capability was added on to the F-16. By the time the C model came in, uh, the radars were greatly improved, uh, the avionics, uh, the computing power, all that was greatly improved. Uh, by the time the Block 50, which was the, the, the latest model uh, mm -hmm. that the, Air, the United States Air Force bought in the, uh, I would say, late 80s to early 90s, the uh, power in it, uh, i.e. the GE engines, uh, 129s and 229s that the airplane carried, uh, basically gave it uh, a lot better uh, thrust to weight uh, than any other fighter out there. And that along with the computing power and better radars and basically avionics, it became a, a, a really, um, uh, it's a very capable airplane in air to air uh, because now it had beyond visual range capability. It had better performance than any other fighter out there. Um, so it basically, I'd say initially was better in air to ground uh, but eventually it, it, it gained an air to air uh, capability, um, that although, um, wasn't necessarily the best at, you know, beyond visual range and stuff like that, like the F-15 had it, you know, in a close in fight, it, uh, it, it really had uh, no rival. So it would be pretty good in the phone booth, to borrow the expression. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in the phone booth, or you know, in the knife fight, uh, it was it was essentially a, a real threat to to basically anybody that would fight it. Mm -hmm. So, what was um, overall flying it like? Because I know it's kind of it's very different from others. That it has a slightly reclined seat, side stick. Yeah. It was the first really major fly-by-wire 
Yes. Uh, you know, the, the F-18, again, is fly-by-wire, but it mm-hmm. operates differently. Uh, they have a, you know, a, a typical stick between the legs that moves um, and all that. The F-16 was the first airplane, uh, fighter airplane with a side stick. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's on the side. So basically everything, you know, there, there's nothing that gets in the way of, of, of any displays in front of you. Uh, again, uh, it's, you know, a lot of guys would say that, that you, you know, you didn't fly the F-16, you wore it. Because when you got in it, there wasn't a lot of extra room in that cockpit. And for the most part, all your controls were on your stick and on your throttles, what they call a HOTAS, mm-hmm. or hands-on throttle and stick controls. And, you know, it, it, it might feel a little unusual to have that seat recline 30 degrees and to to have your side stick here on the, uh, you know, on the right side versus between your legs, like most conventional airplanes were. Uh, but after you get used to it, I mean, you just can't believe that you ever flew anything in a different manner. It is so natural. Everything is where it should be. I mean, it was the first airplane I sat in and I kind of went, okay, it's obvious they've talked to a pilot because everything I need is exactly where I would want it. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, I'm not reaching behind me to pull switches or anything like that once i take off everything is either in my stick and throttle or it's up here on my upfront control so uh it's a very ergonomically designed airplane for the pilot and it really really helps when you're doing air-to-air maneuvering and dogfighting because you really don't have to take your eyes off the adversary to move or switch uh you know, weapons modes, radar modes, or whatever. You just do it all with your with your hands without having to take off, take you know, remove them from the controls. So it's uh, it's a very intuitive airplane. Also, it, it was kind of one of the first airplanes that that was basically a flying computer. Mm-hmm. So you know, in previous airplanes, if you wanted to do a certain function, there was only one way to achieve that. In the F sixteen you could achieve the same function probably in three or four different ways. So, you know, not everybody uh, does or completes tasks exactly the same way. So different pilots would achieve the same end in a different manner. And we, used to, we used to call it the Burger King jet because you can have it your own way. You just, you know, nobody really cared how you got there as long as you got there. Uh, so, you know, I would, I would go from this air to air mode to this air to mode by doing, you know, ABC. Another guy would go CBD or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was kind of a new thing. But again, it, it's it's a, once you once you get used to it, you don't even think about it. It's almost like muscle memory just takes over. So overall, you'd say it's a very pilot friendly airplane. Well, it is in some ways. Uh, it's also a very dangerous airplane in other ways. It's uh, you know, it's one of the one of the, the first airplanes, not, not the first, I would say, because the F-15 came close as well, uh, that would basically, its performance would exceed uh, the human body, ex, uh, you know, performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because 9Gs, I mean, if you're not ready for that, that's, uh, you know, that is very, very taxing. And, you know, if you're not, if you're not doing the right thing, uh, you can pass out. You, a lot of people did. Uh, what we called a G, uh, G-induced loss of consciousness known as G-lock, and a lot, of, a lot of pilots basically pulled more Gs than they were prepared to sustain at the time, and they would pass out. 
because all the blood would drain from their uh, from their brain and from their eyes. And if they were uh, close to the ground, you know, sometimes it would take up to, you know, 90 seconds to three minutes to recover. And when you're, you know, below a thousand feet above the ground flying, at, you know, 500 knots, mm -hmm. you just don't have that much time. So a lot of those, a lot of those pilots basically killed themselves by, uh, by losing consciousness. Um, so the airplane is very dangerous that way. Uh, mm -hmm. So you really always have to be very cognizant of, uh, staying ahead of the airplane and always being ready when you demand that kind of performance out of the airplane that your body is ready to, to sustain it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that was one, you know, one of the things that made the aircraft dangerous for the pilot. Uh, another thing was it, it was an airplane that due to the uh, electronic and fly-by-wire flight controls, it, the airplane didn't really shake much. It didn't talk back to you. You know, when, when you talk to guys who flew in Vietnam in the F-15, they would tell you, they could tell what G's they were pulling or how fast they were going by the vibrations of the airplane, you know, the wing. Well, the F-16 is very insidious. It kind of feels, it feels the same whether you're doing 250 knots or you're doing 450 knots. So if you're not uh, cognizant of your energy state, and you pull back rapidly on the stick and you're not ready to sustain G's, you could basically knock yourself out and then put yourself in a precarious situation where if you, you know, if you didn't have enough altitude to recover, you would crash. So, and, and then remember, I told you that the airplane was designed as a, as a day uh, visual mm -hmm. flight routes fighter back, you know, when, when the A model came out in the late seventies, well, guess what? It's still the same basic airframe. It's got a huge uh, round bubble canopy with no uh, frames on it. So the, mm -hmm. visi the visibility is great. I mean, you can see 360 degrees uh, all around you. Problem is you get into uh, uh, instrument uh, meteorological conditions, IMC weather, mm -hmm. and that, that visibility, you know, is very conducive to getting spatially disoriented because you're basically the clouds are all around you and there's not a lot of frame to keep, you know, to give you a perspective. So those are kind of the the uh, the the Achilles heels, I would say, or the the disadvantages of that airplane, mm -hmm. uh, which basically meant that you had to be very very careful when you were flying instruments or in the weather to not get spatially disoriented. And it would happen to everybody, regardless of whether you wanted it to or not. It was just the, the way the airplane was designed. Mm -hmm. So did you have any experience um, dogfighting against other airplanes in a training environment? And if so, what was that like? Yeah, obviously we did that a lot, right? Um, mm -hmm. And obviously it was a fight that as an F-16 pilot, we relished because we certainly had an advantage on just about any anybody else. Now, you know, having said that, um, you know, it was uh, Baron von Richthofen uh, back in World War One who said that, you know, Victory was not decided by the by the airplane, but by the pilot that was in it, mm -hmm. and, and that still holds true to this day. Uh, and really, what it gets down to is, you can have the best fighter in the world, but if you fight your adversary's fight or where he has advantages, mm -hmm. you may get defeated. So, as a fighter pilot, you like to exploit your advantages and avoid your adversary's advantages and exploit his disadvantages. So, um, you know, as an F-16 pilot, I knew I had a thrust to weight uh, advantage on just about everybody. Uh, I knew that once my adversary uh, was depleted on energy, he couldn't get it back as fast as I could. 
So once that was the case, I either preserved mine or regained mine at a faster rate than he did. And then I basically fought a fight that he couldn't, i.e. using the vertical where he couldn't go because he didn't have the energy to come up after me. So, you know, those are very basic concepts. And, you know, dogfighting is basically energy management in those positions. And you got to know when to trade one for the other uh, to to basically, you know, be victorious. Mm-hmm. So did you have an opportunity to fight it against any other airplanes other than the F-16? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I basically, I've probably fought, uh, fought just about anything. I've, I've fought, uh, and when I say fought, it's all been in training, right? Mm-hmm. I've fought uh, F-4s, uh, F-15s, F-18s. Um, F-5s, uh, MiG-29s, uh, Mirage 2000s. Um, let me think, what else? Mirage 5s, Mirage 3s. Um, I think that's about it that I can remember. Wow, that's impressive. Oh, A-10s as well, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So was there one, maybe one hardest fight that you had? Um, well, again, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the airplane. It would be the, the, the adversary who was in that airplane. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, because if you if you fight a very competent adversary, you know, that, that's really when the fight mm-hmm. gets difficult, not necessarily what airplane uh, you're, you're facing. Um, you know, I've heard that a MiG-29 with a, with a very competent pilot is, is a, you know, is a, is a difficult nut to crack. I was, I was, uh, you know, fortunate or, or unfortunate, however you look at it, but, you know, the, the MiG-29s that I flew, the, the pilots weren't that com- competent, so the fights weren't that difficult. Uh, but, you know, again, it just depends. And you never know who's in that cockpit, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I kind of um, jumped the gun on that, but is there one experience, let's say, other than your ejection, obviously, that sticks out to you and why? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I thought that, uh, you know, fighting in red flag where you have 60 or 70 airplanes in the air at one time and you're not really sure when you're attacking somebody, if you're about to be attacked at the same time, Mm -hmm. uh, that's that's pretty realistic training. You kind of relish that because it's rare that you have that that experience, which is, you know, very, very close to what combat would be like, because you're not entirely sure that, you know, that, you know, where everybody is at every you know, at all moments. And you never really know when uh, another another enemy or something like that is going to get through your defenses. And now you're going to have fight for your life. So I think of that as, uh, as, as, as realistic as you can get it in training. So that was always uh, uh, kind of a neat thing to go and do uh, any chance you, you got to, you know, you were able to. All right. So then starting to wrap up here, um, what's the story behind your call sign? Um, <clears throat> well, my, my, uh, my story is fairly benign. Um, you know, a lot of times call signs are, uh, are kind of, uh, <clears throat> are attained by either, uh, a, uh-huh. an amount of buffoonery or somebody screws something up or, or you look like someone or, or whatnot. Uh-huh. Right? Um, I guess I was fortunate. I didn't really get caught doing any serious buffoonery. Uh, so with me as, as you, uh, attested that uh, when you tried to pronounce my last name, yeah. Uh, most people looked at my last name and said T and it ends in day. And that's about, you know, I said, okay, you're T day. <clears throat> Didn't hurt that uh, when I was at the academy, uh, our classes were split into M days and T days. And what that meant was, you know, so if this week the M days was uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and then the T days were Tuesday and Thursday, and you would swap classes in between those days. So, you know, a lot of my uh, academy brethren said, oh, T-Day, yeah, that, that sounds good. Uh, so that's kind of what stuck with with me. Uh, but, you know, 
uh, a lot of times um, call signs are, you know, at least in the, in the, in the air force, you don't get to choose your call sign. No, you are, you are named by the first squadron that you come into. Mm-hmm. And normally you'll keep that call sign all through your career, unless you do something that's, you know, infamous or notorious, and then they'll probably give you another one. Mm-hmm. And I think the key words in your description there is I didn't get caught. <laughs> so, <True. laughs> and, and, and I have no comment. <laughs> all right, moving on. So if you could, last question here, if you had the ability to time travel and a whole caboodle of money, what three airplanes would you buy and why? Yeah, I, uh, I, uh, like I said, uh, I, I really don't need the time travel. I, uh, I'd like to buy the airplanes that I know exist today. Uh, the first one, yeah, I'd, I'd buy the Viper, the F-16. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was the airplane I flew for 25 years. Loved it. It's a pleasure to fly. Uh, it was designed for, for a fighter pilot. Uh, so I would definitely grab that if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, although I did like the OV-10, I'd probably buy that. Uh, you can buy those. Um, very versatile aircraft, able to take off and land practically anywhere. It burns all kinds of fuels. You just got to change the, the setting on the engines. Mm-hmm. Um, you got T-76s. And, you know, it'll burn uh, avgas. It'll burn kerosene. It'll burn diesel. It'll burn. I mean, it, it just burns anything. It doesn't matter. You change the specific gravity on that engine and it just burns it. So that makes it a very versatile airplane. And uh, and also, you know, you can carry stuff in the back. I mean, it's a tandem seating with, with some cargo space in the back. A lot of guys used to carry uh, surfboards and all kinds of stuff back there. Uh, so it's it's very convenient that way. Uh-huh. And then finally, I would buy me a Gulfstream, you know, a 700 or 750, whatever the latest model is. Uh, because uh, that would allow me to fly all over the world in style, luxury, and uh, still have a performance Fly up, fly up there in the fifties, and after pulling nine Gs for twenty-five plus years, I need a bit, a bit of care and feeding. Yeah. All right. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate it. Oh, you bet. No worries. I enjoyed it. Hopefully, you did too.